Citizen Podcast. Hi, my name is Carrie Kelly, and welcome to another episode of Citizen Podcast, where we are exploring a citizenship of solidarity and how we show up for each other. In this episode, we're talking with world-renowned yoga teacher Sean Korn about navigating privilege and power and what yoga has to do with social change. She's blunt, brilliant, hilarious, and an abundance of wisdom. Sean Korn is a world-renowned master yoga teacher, but to just call her a yoga teacher feels absurd. She is a provocative and moving public speaker. She is the founder of the nonprofit Off the Mat Into the World, which has trained over 5,000 people in how to bridge personal transformation and social change. They've raised over $4 million for humanitarian efforts around the world, and they continue to push the boundaries of yoga beyond duality and into radical and inclusive relationship. And Sean's about to be an author for her first book which knowing her will be a juicy tell-all about her journey from spiritual practice to social action. But what you will experience of Sean on this podcast, and what I know of her in person, is that she is relentless in her pursuit of truth and transformation. She doesn't just preach about getting into the world and taking action, she walks the talk. Her process is real-time and raw and vulnerable, which is why I think she's so popular. People see themselves in her stories. She gives us permission to be broken and beautiful at the same time. I've had the privilege of knowing Sean for many years as a teacher and friend and collaborator, and I can attest to her integrity and commitment to doing the hard and messy work of transformation both on and off the mat. And I think it was her embodiment of the practice more than the philosophy or the sutras or the anatomy training that taught me what yoga really was, how it is the embodiment of our values in action, how it prepares us for the uncomfortable and uncertain experience of being alive in the world by building a capacity for those feelings on the mat, and how it shows us over and over and over again that we can do hard things, whether it's standing on our heads or speaking truth to power, and how the division that we are seeing play out in the world around us is actually playing out within us. And only when we transform ourselves can we transform the world, and only when we transform the world can we transform ourselves. In our conversation, she says, We can't stand on the sidelines. We cannot sit back and have magical thinking that suddenly this is all going to transform without actually getting involved. There is nothing sideline about Sean Korn. She is all in and head first, and she is showing us that transformation is possible from the inside out. I'm looking at her right now and she's making me laugh with her big smile and she's known for her big smile and curly blonde hair. She's already giving me like googly eyes and a really big smile. So we're going to have some fun with this podcast, I think. 
She's the co-founder of an organization that's very dear to my heart called Off the Mat Into the World that really has been bridging personal transformation and social change for at least 10 years now. And Off the Mat has trained over 5,000 leaders, whether they're um, yoga teachers or organizers or politicians or moms. They've raised over $4 million for humanitarian issues, both here and abroad. And Off the Mat has really been a trailblazing organization in the way in which they have really uplifted the relationship between yoga and spiritual practice and social change and conscious activism. So much so that it's really changed, I think, the spirit of the yoga industry in America. And she's currently writing her first book, which I can't wait to get, which, Sean, to my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is a (laughs) tell-all meets personal practice meets next steps and a call to action. Is that correct? Yes. Can I I be your publicist? I wouldn't say it's a (laughs) tell-all. There's not much to tell, but it it, it does juxtapose personal experience with the varying practices of yoga and transformational work. And it allows me both to be very dis, um, very forthright and disclosing within my own experience, and then to make the parallels to the practice of yoga and how to reframe your own personal narratives. And I feel like that's been your gift all along. The way that, that I think people experience you teach the tools and the wisdom of yoga is really through your own human experience. And you've you've never been shy of telling humiliating, self-deprecating stories about <laughs> you in the middle of yoga class. Mm-hmm. And I really think that that is actually the thing that breaks through to people, mm-hmm. right? People see themselves in you. They see their humanity in you. They see their imperfection and their humiliation <laughs> and their yes. mistake making. And they see also the potential and the beauty and the wisdom that you also embody. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is such a unique way of imparting this practice on people because I think it meets people where they are. Mm-hmm. Well, that had always been my intention as a teacher, just to be as um, just as forthright and as human as I possibly can be within my own experience. What's interesting about writing this book is I'm not a natural writer. That is something that's um, that really pushed my edges. Mm-hmm. I'm a communicator and I'm very fluid in my self-expression. But the book writing has been very alchemical. It has taken me by surprise. And the thing that I'm learning most about myself is that as open and as transparent as I believed I have been in the, in the yoga world, in my work, I really have controlled my narrative. And that's what I'm learning because this book is forcing me to go into places that I've never exposed publicly before pull back some of these veils and dig even that much deeper. And I'm so uncomfortable. I'm really resistant. And I realize that in all these years, I, that's the only, the only wording that I could come up with. I control my narrative. I give as much as I feel comfortable and safe with giving. And then I step back. Mm-hmm. And this book is forcing me to go to another level. And is it revealing new, because I've always experienced you as like authentically telling the truth in, in most every moment of your life, that's just like who you are and how people know you. But I imagine like you're going to a whole new dimension when you start unpacking these memories and stories yeah. and feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine that this has been deeply transformational for you too yes. in illuminating maybe what you, you didn't know consciously mm-hmm. about how you have become who you are. Absolutely. Like I really have, I've learned so much and... You know, I'm proud of how I've shown up in the world. Like, I've been very comfortable in the way that I've put myself out there. (laughs) I've always had this skill, something that my mom always does with me, is she'll say, we're in a kitchen, the wallpaper is yellow, you're wearing a blue dress. And all of a sudden I'll say, 
There's a birthday cake to my right. There's a chair and there's a pink cushion on the chair. Someone just drops a glass. And I'm only two years old when my mother is giving me this information. Wow. And so I have this ability to, once you give me a, a couple of indicators, it has to be something my senses can grab onto, a scent or something in a visual, I can put myself in that place. And I've done it even younger than two. So it's like time travel. Mm-hmm. And have very, sp- I can hear conversations. Wow. And my mother will affirm whether, you know, she, and she always gets, she's like, that's just freaky. But what the book is doing is very similar, where in the past I've told some of these stories, but because I've, re- I've shared these narratives so many times, yeah. there's just rhythm to it. Yeah. In the book, as I'm writing it and I'm describing certain places and scenes, suddenly another layer will come out and I'll start to visualize where I'm at, what I'm feeling, who else is in the room with me, and different levels of the story that I had buried. And that's been really, uh, it's a little scary at times, very intense, really emotional. And that's why I say like, I control my narrative. I have been very good in just like having these particular bullet points and I share these stories and this book is forcing me to have to go into certain memories that have been convenient to bypass. The book's not letting me bypass it. And, and it serves me right. You know, this is exactly what I teach. This is what I support and value. That's right. You asked for this. Totally. So I'm not, re- I'm not resistant, yeah. but there's every once in a while, I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yes. Do I really stand for this? Yes. This is hard. Is this yeah. what I teach? You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the spirit of full disclosure about what you're talking about, I want to give a little context to our relationship because you are not just another guest. You are my teacher my friend, my ally, my collaborator, and more. And I was doing the math this morning, Sean, and we have known each other for 15 years now. And I remember very specifically meeting you in San Francisco at Yoga Tree, Castro. You were there doing a youth aids event. And I had just moved to San Francisco um, from New York. And I remembered the the minute you opened your mouth... (laughs) (laughs) I heard home for me, right? Because you're from New Jersey, I'm from New York. Mm -hmm. And everything about who you were was like a homecoming for me. And And it wasn't just about your accent or your New York style. It was about what you were saying that spoke to a part of me that changed me forever. And I think it was something along the lines of... And this was um, a year after 9-11. So I had just lost my stepdad in the World Trade Center. And so I was a mess, quite frankly, on and off the mat. But you said something like, what if we turned our wounds into service? What if we turned our wounds into something else? And that changed me forever. But that was 15 years ago, pre-off the mat into the world. And I just think back so much has changed. I can't even begin to articulate the experiences that I have had over the last 15 years and the way in which it has informed me personally and the way in which it's impacted the community in which I love so dearly and and I hope in a very positive way. I was so naive when I first started talking about that intersection between yoga and service. I, I really knew nothing and I think that that's what my biggest takeaway in the last 15 years is how little I knew that I couldn't have anticipated the, the way in which I was going to have to get educated to understand what it was that I was even putting out there on a public level. It was so complex, so nuanced. 
And I was really immature in my understanding. I, I was right, but I really didn't know what I was right about. You didn't know what you didn't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think, again, very alchemical, you know, that, I keep, that word has been popping up in my life uh, so much in that even that statement that your wounds, you know, for me at that time, I, don't, I, don't, I believe it a little differently now, that your wounds become the place in which you will end yeah. up being the most informed to be of service, the most qualified in a way. That is such a depthful consideration. And it's also incredibly problematic. Right. And I couldn't have known that then. Yeah. It was correct in my soul. And yet I hadn't yet really unpacked that, what that would and could mean. And I think the last 15 years has, has been an intense education. It has been inspiring in watching people step into leadership, encouraging people to engage the way that they have. But me personally, I have had to wake up to so many aspects of myself, my limited beliefs, my own privilege, and have had to unpack perceptions that I didn't even know needed to be awakened. I didn't even know these questions needed to be asked. And so it was very magical to me in this way. Well, it's funny because I was literally just talking to someone the other day about naivety. Mm-hmm. She was a young activist and she was so naive, which which made her bold and yeah. impulsive and courageous in many ways. But she said that if she knew what she knows yeah. now, she wouldn't have done it. No. <laughs> and I'm sure there have been times where you've been like, did I say yes to this? So many times, except that I'm also deeply connected. My relationship to spirit is so strong. So I always believe that I'm a part of something that I can't yet possibly understand. And when things are revealed to me, I feel compelled to continue within that trajectory. I feel an obligation to it because I sense that something is unfolding that I'll understand later. For example, in the past 15 years, again, on a personal level, not based on what I've taught in the community, but what I've had my ass handed to me, is I've had to really look at, like I mentioned before, my own power and privilege. I've had to look at themes around internalized oppression and belief systems that are inherited that would impact my understanding of racism, of sexism, of homophobia, of transphobia, of ageism, of ableism. These were conversations that I never had to have because I'm a white woman with privilege. And doing this work with Off the Mat and going into environments in which I went into, bringing my ignorance along with me, there were so many moments where it was like, oh, honey, like, wake <laughs> up. And I had to get educated. Yeah. I had to put Thank my- Thank God for those people, right? Yeah. I mean, I got called out so many times, deservedly so. I wish it could have been kinder. That would have been nice. Yeah. But that wasn't the way it went down. Yeah. But it did- It was the gift. It forced me to have to recognize that, that I'm not exempt- from any of the behaviors that perpetuate any kind of a separation or oppression. And that the real, if there was a real crime in this, it would be that I stayed so attached to my ignorance, because I can, that would make me complicit. That I couldn't tolerate. Right. The knowing that I, that because I didn't, I don't have to look at this stuff, that makes me complicit, yeah. which is something that I had to move towards. Well, that understand, I don't want to be complicit, then what do I have to look at? I had to look at where am I racist? Where am I sexist? And I'm not exempt from any of that. Right. These were, this was hard and it was humbling and it was scary and it was e- much easier to tell other people I have to look at this stuff. 
Um, but over the last 15 years, I have read, researched, processed, uh, invited inquiry, asked people to challenge me, and have really forced myself to look at these issues in a way that helped me to understand why people do things out of ignorance, why people do things out of their own unchecked privilege. When the election happened, and suddenly, especially amongst the privileged community, there is all this conversation suddenly about race and sexism and xenophobia, and people are, can't believe all this rhetoric, where there's other people within the marginalized communities are like, oh, you're just figuring this out now? Yeah, welcome to reality. Right. I, all of a sudden, I sat back and I felt like, oh, this is why. For the last 15 years of my life, I have been on this fast track of education and understanding and trying to balance that understanding internally, noticing the trauma within my own body, noticing my natural reaction to any oppression, noticing the ways in which I'm complicit. Having to embody that myself, I feel unbelievably prepared to help support other people who haven't in the last 15 years had to, especially people like myself, who haven't had to go into this dialogue. Those are the moments where I'm like, oh, that's why it happened. I thought off the mat was supposed to be something else. And then suddenly it, it, it's got its own little life force. Yeah. And I trust that. But I do recognize the last 15 years have been an education for me personally to help me to wake up to my own unchecked privilege so that I can be a little bit more supportive in as we're going through this very critical time to other people and invite them into the process that I was in so they can take their own accountability. Well, and one of the things I love about the way that you do that is that you invite people into your process and not your state of graduated intelligence. It's not like I have learned this and therefore I have arrived. Yeah. <laughs> like for you, it's unquenchable, right? This, um, this commitment to constantly uncovering the truth mm-hmm. and becoming the whole of who we are. And and I think that that is the practice. I know that you, you say often in class, and it's always stuck with me, that when you do the yoga, it becomes inevitable, mm-hmm. right? That you are called to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so what was that moment for you in your own personal life when you realized that the yoga was so much more than the asana and even the personal experience of yoga, that it couldn't not be interconnected and interrelated with Mm -hmm. everything else. Mm -hmm. I think like everything in my experience of my own personal growth within the practice of yoga is, I mean, I was always involved in social justice issues at at a young age, but it was very separate from my yoga practice. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily sustainable. I had a lot of issues personally, I I came from an environment where there was trauma. I never knew how to express myself Mm -hmm. except through anger and through rage or dissociation and shutdown. And so by uh, getting out there into the world and uh, confronting injustice, it allowed me to express and that discharge energy and that made me feel better. Um, But it wasn't, I didn't understand that there was a connection. I couldn't have because I was a little baby yogi. My first years of the practice of yoga were only physical. They were, they were not spiritual. They were not philosophical. I couldn't have made that connection at that time. I was just trying to get introduced to my body and the sensations and deal with my ego, my determination, my competitiveness, uh, all, this, the, all the ways in which I related to the physical world. So for years, my practice was simply physical, But 
I can look back now and understand that that was a very deep physiological and psychological purification process to help me to relinquish the tension, the deeply embedded tension in my body that was keeping me safe and in control. When that tension finally broke itself through on a physical level, then I had an experience where I could, I was feeling that it was never safe for me to feel. Rage was okay because it's an active, dominating, masculine energy. But vulnerability, um, that was something I was unaccustomed to. It was very threatening to my psyche. And so I had to go through a process to try to recalibrate uh, my natural need to want to tense up around my vulnerability and creating space for it without trying to make it bad, or even at that point, trying to figure out how, where that vulnerability came from, just being with the vulnerability. That process helped me become very empathetic to the human experience, my own. I I really understood and had a deep appreciation for just a little girl within myself who found very interesting skills for, for emotional survival. And I understood why I made choices the way that I would make choices, whether it was in my relationship or, or in the work that I did, based on this need to be loved and to be valued and to be seen. The yoga practice gave me space to have to feel that and to be present with that and to allow room for the healing to, to arise uh, via my body and also through a shift in perception. So there's a chunk of time now where I'm deeply immersed, not in not just in the physical practice, but also in therapy, trying to make the connection between the trauma that, I, that I've experienced, not just in present time, but historical trauma, ancestral trauma, cultural trauma, and how that lived in my body and how that was affecting the way in which I was seeing the world. And as I move through that process and really understood the way in which narrative lives in the body and was able to discharge it in a, in a, in a safer, more integrated way, it did something just quite organic. I just liked me better, the highest aspect of myself, and I was able to see that higher aspect in self, of self in others, even if I didn't like them, even if they mm. were going through their own stuff. I really had a strong sense that the way in which they're responding to the world is a reaction of their own unhealed wounds, historically or in present time. And I had, I felt such a deep compassion for those beings. What also happened is that when I would recognize people in the world who didn't have access to the tools that I had, I understood why they would drink or do drugs or beat their partners or neglect their kids. I'm not saying that I condone that, but I understood that what they were doing was a reaction of their suppressed experience. And I also felt a deep compassion. And so yoga moved from from me, from the physical to the more energetic and emotional. And it opened me to a level of first self-compassion and then more universal compassion. And as I cultivated these skills, and they started to work in real time, I started to notice that in conflict, I was less reactive, Mm -hmm. that I was able to ground, I was able to resource, I was able to breathe. I could make a note internally, like, oh, I feel the impulse that I want to rip their friggin' head off. (laughs) I could feel it in my body, but I knew that I had the skills to make a healthier choice in that moment that would be more... Um, more integrative. 
And then I would process that other, the anger out at another time. Right. But that I, in the moment, I didn't have to react. I could respond. And the response was coming way more centered and way more loving. And that, so in answer to your question, my particular movement in the practice of yoga started from the me, my body, my health, to the me, my emotional Mm. health and wellness, my self-awareness, and then self-responsibility to the we, to the collective. Because I think that what I recognize deeply is that the fact that I have access to these tools, these books, these resources, these support systems is a privilege. And I don't know why. It's, it's certainly growing up, this is not something that wasn't accessible to me as a kid. But for whatever reason, when I stepped on a yoga mat, the languaging that was being asserted in that space spoke to something very deep within my unconsciousness. And I felt I was home. And over the years, through the practice and through the literature, was able to gain insight and wisdom and practical tools. It's a democratic um, uh, Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. in that I, through the practice of yoga, I get to ask questions. Who am I? What is truth? What is love? To whom will I serve? What is God? Do I believe in God? And it's very fluid in the way in which I can Mm self-reflect. And I became aware that most people in the world, because of systems of power that include political, religious um, uh, systems, would, these people would literally be killed or jailed doing what I get to do each and every day without question. And it was because of that knowing that really shifted something within me where I thought, wait a second, how dare I not take these qualities that I've learned through these tools, this is not magic, it's practice, and apply it to trying to create through action and through participation from the inside out, a world that is fair and free and equal and safe for all beings. Because the practice of yoga teaches us, you know, we're one. But what it's telling us. She's, there's quotation yeah, yeah. marks. If you can see, we are one. Yeah. I'm putting, which is absolute and relative. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that it's not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's energy. We are all one. Right. And, but if that's true, then everyone should have access to resources. That's right. Then everyone should be able to love whom that's they right. choose. And yet we're not having the same experience of being alive on the planet. Right. On any level. Mm-hmm. So therefore, that's not yoga. And if I'm a yogi, then I've got to go towards where the separation exists and do my best to heal it. But the thing is, if I'm participating in it because of my own, again, unchecked privilege or my own bias and discrimination and racism, my own unwillingness to look at my ignorance, then why would I expect my, our leadership to tra- change? Why would I expect our mm-hmm. systems to change? Mm-hmm. Why would I expect the world to change mm-hmm. if I resist the change within myself? And so I really do believe that if you do this work and are committed to the work and recognize that the work doesn't end on the healing of the individual. The healing of the individual is what is required to begin to create a shift of consciousness via active and conscious engagement. And if we cannot stand the systems, the systems are only made up of people. That's right. 
change the people, you change the system. Well, and it's, I feel like what you're, you're talking about is really tricky for this community to comprehend mm -hmm. because, because we are participating in these systems, right? Mm -hmm. we, are a we are a part of the problem, whether it's because of our whiteness or mm -hmm. whether it's because of our unchecked privilege or whether it's because of even the ways in which we participate in capitalism, we pay taxes. I mean, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, we are a part of these systems. And I think sometimes in wellness and spiritual communities, we like to believe that we're above them, mm -hmm. but, yeah. but we are very much anchored. In, we are swimming in them, whether we can see it or not. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I feel like you've done really well is articulate that we have to hold that paradox, that we are of these systems, mm -hmm. that we are actively participating in them, mm -hmm. and simultaneously, we are a part of the solution. It's funny, I just had an experience of that just last week. I had gone to South Dakota to do a learning and listening tour right. to learn more about the real Amer American history of the Native Americans and the impact that the genocide and colonization has had on the tribal nations, past, present, and future. And, and I do this kind of education for myself a lot because it's probably the gift of growing up with a, a mediocre education. You know, I grew up in an environment where I learned the way that everybody else learned about Ma American history. And I, as I've gotten older, I didn't go to college. So I didn't learn social justice one-on-one. -on -one. I, I didn't learn that stuff. I didn't have a, I don't have an academic understanding of anything really it's not the way i i operate well and it's also not what we're taught mm -hmm. in school no that I we, mean, we're not taught the whole truth no not even close so my interest is to actually find out the real truth but by the people who are actually directly impacted by it and to listen just to listen one of the reasons that i wanted to go specifically to uh south dakota and to do this particular tour is because right now i'm at a place where i'm really looking at systems of power and i'm looking at the way the impact that institutionalized oppression is set up in the most subtlest of ways to continue to disempower and marginalize communities. I understood this intellectually, but again, because of my own education, I wanted to understand what's the root of this? Like where, in terms of America- Where did this begin? Yeah. And so I thought, well, let's go back to the original people where the, the, the first true in the United States, the first genocide happened, where colonization happened, where it was strategic. Well, and I love that you're, you're returning to that place as the origin, because I think even in American politics right now, I think there's a lot of rhetoric around, we need to return to the values of the founding fathers, right? Right? Who were slave owners <laughs> and mm -hmm. colonizers. Right? Like, that's not the truth of, of how we began. The truth of how we began, to your point, is we came to this country as a white dominant culture and we stole the land and mm -hmm. we killed people and like how do we tell that story right as the beginning and how do we reconcile that right well there was a saying back in the day kill the indian save the man and it's very deliberately what they did was to take them away from the communities to try to uh annihilate the spiritual practices to cut their hair and to try to get them to, and I put this in air quotes again, assimilate into uh, the culture at that time that was dominating uh, by destroying their natural earth-based practices. And it was so systematic and strategic, very deliberate, and it still exists today. Right. It's more complex. Mm -hmm. 
and subtle and subtle. insurgent. It's in our media. Yeah. It's in all of the... Diff- it, it's everywhere. I can see it way more clearly now. Now that I see where the how it originated, again, here in the United States, it's... I'm still, I'm only a week into the process, so there's still so much that I'm trying to... I can imagine. Oh, yeah. It's going to take me a while to process this. For the first few days, my head was just spinning because it really is the real American history. And even to this day, to see what the government is continuing to do and how the Native American people are having to fight for things that they shouldn't have to fight for. One of the things, we went to this um, place called Devil's Tower. That's what it's called. And that's an offense to the Native American people because this is a sacred place. It's a rock that was featured in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Like that's okay. like where if people might know that, uh, that that rock, that mountain from that movie. But Which is a whole other can of worms that yes. I reference. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Um, but this is, uh, it's, they call it Bear's Lodge, and it is sacred. And there are tons of stories that go along with this. And it's still a very active place of worship to the Native American people. And yet, it's also a national park. And so when you get there, there are people climbing up the rocks and taking pictures and hanging out. Now, he refused to take us to the front entrance. We had a hike, just the same way that many of the Native Americans go to worship uh, we had to hike to the back and sit in a field as he told us the stories because he won't support, of course, that culture. But he said it was akin to if he came to any church or temple and threw ropes up over the building and started to climb up churches or temples, it's the same thing. Or the U.S. Capitol building or the White House. Anything. <laughs> right? But this is a sacred, this is this is their church. And people are hiking on it and defacing it every single day, and it's allowed. And there's no place in the entire area that talks about what it really is to the Native American people. No place. It talks about the butterflies and, and the, the wildlife, but not what it has meant for thousands and thousands of years. Right to the Native Americans to this day. And he showed us examples of that every everywhere and the ways in which they have protested to get signs up at least. Just exp- to get a sign up. Yeah, just to get a sign up uh, to explain what these places are and the impact that these places have had culturally to all of these tribes. Mm. That's the kind of thing that's like, well, that's still going on. Yeah. That hasn't really changed, and people are still having to fight. Um, Just for the truth. And for their own identity. And what you see now, right now, it's very symbolic. There's the the, the white male dominance is so prevalent and rich in our, especially our governmental system. And it is so devoid of a sensitivity to the diversity that exists within this country that existed way before we as white people yeah. descended upon it. It was very difficult to be there. I, it's not that I felt guilt or shame. I, I didn't. Because, you know, I'm, I'm third generation American. I, there, there, there's something that feels a little. Uh, I don't. I don't have that particular emotion. I felt so deeply saddened mm-hmm. because we are continuing a cycle of oppression, where the end result can only be the same, more genocide, more colonization. And when I say genocide, it's spiritual genocide, you know, cultural genocide, yep. uh, gender genocide, sexual genocide. It's just, it's just so evident. And this need for land, this need for power, this need for dominance. I think my trip 
and focusing on the real American history via that particular perspective was really illuminating. My hope is that everyone takes a trip like this to all the different cultures that they're not familiar with. Um, that's always my interest. You know, I, I, I didn't understand it in the same way I don't understand black culture, in the same way I don't understand so many different kinds mm -hmm. of cultures because it hasn't been mine. My culture has afforded me the luxury of not having to have to look, and I want to know. I want to give a shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. Citizen Podcast is reimagining citizenship for all of us. Not the kind that requires documents and papers, but an everyday practice of how we take care of each other and the whole of society. We're daring to ask hard questions about who we are and who we are to one another and what's possible when we show up for the well-being of the whole. But making a good podcast takes a village, and so we're building one on Patreon. And what we love about this platform is that it's mutual. It's about supporting one another. By joining this community, you get lots of good stuff from us, like practice tools and meditation, community forums that inspire conversation, and lifestyle content that you can trust. And not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can opt in for as little as $1 per month, or $5, or $10, and so on. And think of it this way, for the equivalent of one coffee per month or one yoga class or one dinner, you get to be a part of something bigger, a call to action to become better citizens for humanity. So check us out on patreon.com forward slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. In my witnessing of you over the last 15 years, you have a hunger for, for learning, and I think we're hearing that in this conversation. You're like in relentless pursuit of the truth that continues to unfold for you. But the way in which you go about getting the truth has always been through relationship. Like I've so many instances witnessed you lean into a relationship and ask really hard, sometimes humiliating questions mm -hmm. so that you can better understand who we are, how we have come to be here, to reconcile the ways in which we are different and the same. And I just say that because I, I do feel like we are in a moment in our country and in our community of awakening. And there is a lot of seeking of understanding racism, understanding privilege, understanding inequity and inequality. And yet, all of the textbooks and white papers and trainings in the world don't compare to the kind of learning that is present when we are in authentic relationship with mm -hmm. one another, when we're vulnerable, mm -hmm. when we open our heart, when we say, I, I don't know, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, mm -hmm. or I don't know where to go from here, or help me understand. And I just think back, like you really have modeled that consistently over the years. Like that the source of your learning has always, I feel like, been mm -hmm. inside of relationship. Yeah, I don't think I ever thought about it consciously. I learned differently. Like I had said, I didn't do well in school. You couldn't give me a text. I, I could read it maybe memorize the information, but it could never land in me. And I didn't do well in school. 
I realize now I didn't learn the way a lot of other people learned. I wasn't linear in the way that I learned. But if you put me into an experience, I get very quiet, I pay attention, and something happens within my consciousness where all of a sudden, the pe- everything starts to click and come together for me in a very different way. I just learn differently. And I remember a teacher that when I was 15, who recognized that I learned differently, he gave me a book, The Color Purple, and it wasn't on our book list. And at that time, The Color Book Purple, because it was dealing with race and incest and uh, all sorts of uh, um, uh, homosexuality, like really more taboo subjects for a 15-year-old, he gave me those books and he would give me independent Um, exercises from the other students and he would only ask me to write how I felt um, about the themes and I could use any language that I wanted and um, express myself in any way I wanted to and that was very liberating for me. And radical in an educational system that doesn't make space for that. Yes, Uh, Mr. Paul McCullough, he was only 26 (laughs) years old when he was my teacher and he was... Mr. McCullough, you just got a shout out from Sean Korn. Uh but he really helped me to, you know, again, like kind of like what I said earlier, like I have the way in which my mind works is that I'm very visual that way. I'm kind of right. In some ways, I'm very left brain. In some ways, I'm very right brained. But I realized I learned differently. And the color book purple was really about relationships. And it exposed uh, sexuality and trauma and uh, community, race in this through a very different lens of all these different relationships and something about it connected for me and then when i moved to new york city i was constantly put in situations where they were outside of my realm of understanding uh growing up in new jersey you know I'm just sheltered and suddenly i'm in environments there's a lot of drugs there's a lot of sex uh there's a lot of d- diversity and this is when you moved to Manhattan. When I moved to Manhattan. So I'm 17 years old. So I'm really, I'm a, a baby. Culture shock, mm-hmm. big time. And because I, I asked questions and I, it was probably inappropriate when I look back at it. It was probably really naive and annoying. But if I didn't understand homosexuality and I was hanging out with a person who was gay, I asked. And it didn't occur to me at that time that it might be uncomfortable, it might be inappropriate. I was too young. I just would ask questions. If I met someone with a different disability, I would ask questions. But I was also open if someone wanted to ask me any question. Right. I didn't feel... It was reciprocal. Yeah. and, And it would be, not just some stranger, you know, there'd be a relationship developed and then intimacy. And it was through this intimacy that it was, I started to wake up more. And I would still read in books, but it wasn't the same as actually being in the experience itself. And I think that that's always been a very organic way in which I've operated. I started traveling alone at um, my first trip to Europe. I would have been 19 years old. And I spent three months in Europe on my own, just immersing myself in the culture and watching the loneliness, the isolation that came up from me, the, 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 the way in which I felt so out of place in a foreign country. And it started making me think, well, if I feel out of place in a foreign country, I wonder what people coming to America must feel like. So my education only happened through these these experiences where I put myself in them and then reflected. And it has evolved from there. Well, and I just wonder if that 
isn't exactly the way we should be learning. I think about how our educational system doesn't actually make room for everyone's kind of learning style mm-hmm. or capacity and also doesn't really center relationships in the way in which we learn. And I think back to the original way of learning, and I'm sure you heard a lot about this in your listening and learning tour in South Dakota, right? That the learning happened through storytelling and relationship. Yes. There are no textbooks. Nope. There was no indoctrinated <laughs> religion. There was like story and experience and relationship and learning and vulnerability and suffering and joy. Mm-hmm. Yet it does seem like we've lost that. And I, I just name that like in a time where it seems like a, a crack and an aperture of awakening. And there seems to be a grab for the kind of learning that we've been taught to learn mm-hmm. that we're better served, in fact, doing the thing. I mean, you were just saying like, I learned differently and I'm thinking, you learned exactly the way we should all be learning. Mm-hmm. And if we actually can return to a place of like, let's be an authentic relationship and learn together, that's a huge leap forward, especially when we're having to navigate um, issues of racism and mm-hmm. privilege and inequity and corruption and suffering mm-hmm. um, and oppression. You know, these these are hard things to understand because we come from different places and we have different lenses and different privileges and different access. We can only learn. Well, it's interesting together. What, what I learned about myself in this learning and listening tour, because... Um, our guide, his name is um, Rain Bear Stands Last. Rain it, Bear Stands Last. Yeah, Rain, mm-hmm. we called him. Mm-hmm. And Rain would, we would sit and he would talk and just drop down these stories for hours, literally hours. And it was a deep listening. And now I've done this kind of work a lot, but normally there's an exchange. You talk a little bit, you have some questions. There was no questions, there was no interruption. You listened. And I can see that this was very much a part of the, their, their tribal way. What I noticed in myself was a couple of things. And one was my need to ask a question. Uh, like I would be listening and in my mind already formulating questions um, without really recognizing odds are he's going to answer that question at yeah. some point. It was more my need to actually assert myself into the conversation, which is dominance. Yeah. And the, the right that I felt that I had to ask these questions, again, it's in my body. This, I have that right. And where did I learn that right? Where did I learn I can interrupt? Where did I learn that my question was even of any interest? And not just to shut up and pay attention right. and absorb. And that was a real interesting thing for me because I kept saying, Sean, knock it off. Like, yeah. like why, why do you need to be asking questions and formulating in their head rather than being totally present? That was a really interesting experience to have to just sit and listen and take it in and let it assimilate the way in which it was always done. Intended, right. And, but at the same time, it really brought up stuff for me that's still like that, that, that dominant impulse. But it also brought up like, as a woman, like I really watched my uh, need as a woman to have to- Take up space. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and desert. Uh-huh, the oppressed mm-hmm. saying, you know, because Rain, although he's a Native American person, he's still a man. Mm-hmm. So I had to look at my own impulse of trying to assert dominance, male, female, and be like, look at that, look at that. Where else yeah, does this show juicy. up? So this experience 
again, always holds that mirror up. And that's what interests me. You know, I want to do this well and meaning that I want to, in in the small little time that I'm a part of this world, engaging in the way that I am. I want to be effective in my leadership. And the only way I believe that I can do that is if I'm committed to the inner work itself, both without apology and also without excuses. I don't get to let myself off the hook. Um, again, if I do, then I'm complicit. Right. And the fact that I don't have to, it's not self-beat. I laugh at myself all the time. Like I'm very well aware. I love aware. you too. Thank you. Like, <laughs> I'm humbled by this. Yeah. I'm humbled at my humanity. I'm humbled how deep it is, you know, how deep trauma runs and all the different ways our ego will try to assert itself for yeah. dominance. And, and protect and defend. Yep. And defend cre- our heart. And create separation. That's right. It's like the macro and the micro are, are, are absolutely aligned. But if I can understand and sensitize myself to the impulse that I have, then I can understand why Donald, Donald Trump makes the decisions that he makes. I can understand. I don't condone it. But I can understand based on his own unpacked trauma right. and his need his survival is dependent upon his dominance. So it makes sense why he's going to surround himself with billionaires, why he's going to surround himself with the like-minded. Yep. Because of the depths of his insecurity. And so I can sit back and if I can see that shared humanity, maybe I can work with that. Yeah. Otherwise, all I'm going to do is the hatred that I have for the perpetuation of oppression is going to influence my ability to communicate to that. And so then I'm going to come across as shrill or unyielding or defendant instead Mm -hmm. of trying to pull that layer back, see the depths of the insecurity and recognize where is that root? Where was the survival of the the original people from the 13 colonies, the, the oppression that they experienced over in England? How was that being replicated here in the United States against the Indians? How is that original oppression still being played out today? So to me, it's all connected because the Donald Trumps of the world are in direct relationship to those original 13 and that oppression and that need for survival and dominance. So I feel like I have to sensitize myself to all of the ways in which trauma plays itself out and let that with compassion inform my dialogue doesn't make me any less determined or fierce or truthful, but it does make me a little bit more loving and a little bit more human. And maybe if more and more people can actively engage in the systems, radically truthful with determined commitment for social change, but steeped in a commitment to put love above everything, then maybe there's a more creative way in which we can transform these systems from the inside out. I don't know if that's true or not. What I do know is true, that if I keep staying in the unconscious, then I will participate and perpetuate behaviors that are propelling this country towards annihilation, towards true separation and death, death the soul of the nation, death of the soul of the nation. And so I need to change. Mm-hmm. We need to change. We need to transform, but it requires ownership. And so that's why I, I laugh at myself in this process because I realize how much I don't know, how flawed my educational system has been, how deeply embedded into my body are these old conditionings based on my religion and my education and my gender and my whole community in which I grew up with, and how hard it is to change thought patterns when they are so organic 
to who we are and the way in which we identify ourselves. It's this deep unraveling. And the only way for me to change it is, like you said, it's being in relationship. It's having skin in the game. And it's being willing to take ownership for my own humanity without feeling bad about it. It's like, yeah, I'm an idiot. And I'm going to try better. But you do that for other people too. And I I think that that's what feels... um, really significant in this particular moment of resistance in our country where we are facing rollback after rollback after rollback and so many people are going to suffer Mm -hmm. at the hands of this administration Mm -hmm. in your brand or your flavor of transformation it doesn't just include holding the humanity of yourself it includes holding the humanity of everyone Mm -hmm. and including like no one's excluded from that practice Mm -mm. and I think that that's what makes your activism for me and I've you know I've been drawn to this for 15 years now so profound because it's not a transactional kind of activism that reacts or that um, blames or shames Um, but it's a tricky activism Mm -hmm. that's relentless in its pursuit of the whole truth Mm -hmm. and integrous in the way in which um, it embraces the whole of who we are and our whole history. I don't know if this is really how we're going to make change, but I I do, I'm invested in this theory Mm -hmm. that if we can be a commitment to the transformational work of the whole and including the, the the joy and the pain and the miracles and the suffering mm-hmm. and the whole of who we are, then that is the only way mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. And then peace is inevitable. That's the inevitable outcome of this kind of interconnection and, and compassion and empathy, but empathy with action, compassion with action and participation. We can't stand on the sidelines. That's right. And we cannot just sit back and have magical thinking that suddenly this is all going to transform without actually getting involved. I know that I have to be involved and share my gifts and my privilege in the way in which I can to help to support other people into this particular process and to want to be in this deep inquiry because the more that we can do the inner work necessary and the more that we can see this interdependency, then wanting to engage becomes the next step natural progression and expression of our love. And so that's why I don't see yoga as separate from anything. It's not separate from politics. It's not separate from social justice. It's not separate from animal rights. It's not separate, separate from environmental injustice. It's injustices. It, it, everything is connected. And as our friend Marianne Williamson says, you can't be selectively conscious. Either That's you right. are or you're not. And right now there's a lot of unconsciousness in the world. And I, and I understand it's uncomfortable. Waking up is really uncomfortable because it like and you're it. having your own experience of that, as am I, as are many of us yeah. in our own ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I'm just willing to talk about it. Uh, no one told me that in no one told me years ago that I should be embarrassed, you know, about talking about my humanity publicly. <laughs> well, we're back to that naivety, right? Yeah. Like if we yes. knew what we know now, <laughs> yeah. had I would known. we have would we have said yes? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it was just very natural, and you know, plus, you know, holding the seat of the teacher, it was very. In- it was very important to me not to uh, buy into those kind of projections and to be allowed publicly the space to continue doing my inner work and sharing what I'm learning along the way, not suggesting I'm, I'm better off than anybody. Right. You're uh, not above it. You're not no. perfect. You don't know it. everything. I just have the ability in a public space, in an embodied experience to articulate information 
but all I'm ever doing is saying out loud what it is that I'm practicing and right. what I believe and hoping that someone else is just like, oh, I hear you, sister. Yeah. But I'm still always struggling. But I'm, again, grateful yeah. that I get to do this work. We are reimagining a citizenship where everyone belongs. And that calls us to fight for the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. Among them, 800,000 young people are living in fear because of the DACA crisis. An attack on immigrants is an attack on all of us. We need to fight to keep our families together and ensure the well-being of everyone. Please make it a practice of your citizenship to demand permanent protection, dignity, and respect for our undocumented communities. You can learn more about how to engage at fairimmigration.org and unitedwedream.org. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to listen and learn. Get curious about what you don't know or can't possibly understand, and then get educated. And Off the Mat Into the World trainings are a great place to start. Check out their schedule at offthematintotheworld.org. And if you haven't experienced Sean Korn in living color, you must. She is an experience that will change you forever. It certainly changed me. Check her out at seancorn.com. Thanks for being here today. Special thanks to our producer, Trevor Exter, and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowd-sourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share the love by telling your friends to check us out.